Welcome to the iFormRx podcast, where we explore the evidence that matters to ambulatory care pharmacy practice. This is Stuart Haynes, and I'm the host. Thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to participate in this professional development activity. In today's episode, we're going to critically examine a cost-effectiveness study. As we are all well aware, the cost of medications, particularly the cost of biologics, is straining healthcare budgets. Of course, drug costs represent a small fraction of the overall cost of healthcare in the United States, but it's it's one of the most visible costs and nearly always under intense scrutiny. There have been some bad actors over the years who have rapidly increased the cost of medications, making them unaffordable, even for those who have health insurance but have high deductibles or high copays. For those of us who've practiced ambulatory care for a while now, EpiPen and Colchris come to mind. But just because a medication is expensive doesn't mean that it's not cost-effective. Indeed, vaccinations, which are among the most cost-effective, actually save the healthcare system because they prevent the need for physician visits, laboratory tests, antiviral therapy, costly hospitalizations, and more. So we can't determine whether a treatment is cost-effective simply by looking at its price tag. Since cardiovascular disease is highly prevalent and costly, treatments that can significantly reduce cardiovascular event rates have the potential, and I emphasize the word potential, to reduce future healthcare costs. And that's where a cost-effectiveness analysis can be helpful. As many of our listeners know, Ecosapent Ethyl, which goes by the brand name Vesepa, was approved a few years ago to reduce the risk of major cardiovascular events in patients with elevated triglycerides, and particularly in those who are at the highest risk of cardiovascular events who are already taking a maximally tolerated dose of a statin. And while ecosapent ethyl is certainly effective in reducing serum triglycerides, I think the jury is still out on whether it's cost-effective. Should health plans, for example, encourage the use of ecosapent ethyl among its physicians and its patients because it has beneficial downstream effects that can help reduce costs? So that's why I asked Joseph Nardalillo and Vivian Cheng to review a recently published paper, which appeared in the journal JAMA Open Network in February 2022. The study reports the results of a pharmacoeconomic analysis of the REDUCE-IT study. Dr. Nardalillo is an ambulatory care specialist who practices within Integra Community Network, which is an accountable care organization that provides primary care services. And he's also on faculty at the University of Rhode Island College of Pharmacy. And Dr. Cheng is a clinical pharmacy specialist at the Valley Family Medicine Residency Clinic in Renton, Washington. Joe and Vivian have been frequent contributors to iFormerX. So Joe and Vivian, it's great to have you back on the iFormerX podcast today. Hi, Stuart. It's great to be back here with you. Hey, thanks for having us again, Stuart. So before we talk about the pharmacoeconomic analysis that you both wrote about in your commentary, can you give us a little background information about ecosapent ethyl and the REDUCE-IT study? Now, 
We've previously reviewed the design and the results of the Reduced study on iFormerX, and, and I encourage our listeners to review the written commentary by Melissa Norton and Lizzie Cook about the Reduced study. But I think it would be great to have a very quick summary of the study design and results. And currently, what is the place in therapy in clinical practice guidelines for ecosopen ethyl? And are you seeing it used very much in your own practices? So as many of our listeners may already know, fish oils are composed of two main types of omega-3 fatty acids, a DHA or docosahexaenoic acid and EPA, which is eicosapentaenoic acid. And so the Reduced study was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in early 2019. And the authors found that eicosapentaethyl, which is a highly concentrated EPA-only fish oil, further reduced residual cardiovascular risk when it was added to a background statin therapy in patients who either had established atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or who had diabetes with other cardiovascular risk factors, all who had moderately elevated triglycerides between 135 to 500 mg per deciliter. And ultimately, when they compared ethyl four grams daily to a mineral oil placebo, they found that the ethyl reduced the primary endpoint, which was a classic MACE endpoint, including cardiovascular death, MI, non-fatal stroke, coronary revascularization, and unstable angina by 25%, and they found a number needed to treat of 21. And so this was an impressive risk reduction that no other fish oil product had demonstrated before. And I wanted to quickly touch upon that almost all of the secondary endpoints also favored ethyl, which were the individual components of the primary composite outcome. And finally, they found that adverse events didn't differ much between the trial groups, but the rate of atrial fibrillation was a little bit higher in the ethyl group of 5.3% versus 3.9% in the placebo group. So... When Reduce It was published, it was after our last comprehensive guideline update for the management of hypercholesterolemia, which we saw in 2018 in combination with the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology, and other multi-society groups. But in 2021, the ACC released an expert consensus decision pathway for the management of ASCVD risk reduction in patients with persistent hypertriglyceridemia. The expert consensus pathway outlines icosapenethyl as an option in patients with clinical ASCVD with an LDL of less than 100 milligrams per deciliter with persistent fasting triglycerides between 150 to 500 milligrams per deciliter, but only after these patients have them optimized on maximally tolerated statin with confirmed medication adherence, positive lifestyle changes, and the secondary causes of hypertriglyceridemia ruled out. While we've typically focused on the total and LDL cholesterol decreases with statins, we should remember that statins yield a dose-dependent decrease in elevated triglycerides by about 10 to 30%. And bringing it back to the 2018 guidelines, we consider high triglycerides as a risk enhancer, meaning that it's something that we know may increase ASCVD risk, but it's not necessarily incorporated into the pooled cohort equation, and therefore risk may be underrepresented. Lastly, the National Lipid Association also released a scientific statement recommending the use of icosapenethyl in patients who fit the reduce it criteria. Within my clinical practice in the primary care setting, I'm not seeing too much icosapenethyl prescribed at this time. I feel that I do see patients who may be eligible for this based on criteria outlined by ACC or the NLA. But as it currently stands, it seems that many of our folks are hanging on to some of their OTC fish oils before making the leap to the highly concentrated icosapenethyl. 
Same. That's also what I've been seeing, Joe. It seems like there's been a pretty slow uptake of ethyl in primary care. And I feel like many of my family medicine residents and clinic forget that it is an option, perhaps at no fault of their own, considering the myriad of things that they have to think about and prioritize in very short patient visits. I haven't seen our cardiologists use it regularly either. I know that in Washington State's Medicaid plans, ethyl requires a prior auth. So I feel like that might also be just a logistic bond bottleneck for its use. I do know that our lipid specialists in the area use it more frequently, but in general, it just seems less prevalent in primary care. So let's talk about the study that you reviewed in your iFormerX commentary. As I mentioned, the study was published in late February 2022 in JAMA Open Network, and it's entitled Cost-Effectiveness of Ethyl for High-Risk Patients with hypertriglyceridemia despite statin therapy. And of course, we provide a link to that paper on the iFormerX website, but can the two of you give us a brief summary of the study methods and results? So first off, I think this is going to be a little bit of a different study than what most of our folks and listeners at iFormerX are used to. This was a cost-effectiveness analysis that was the first to utilize patient-level data from the REDUCE-IT trial, analyzing the cost from the U.S. healthcare perspective. The aim of the study was to estimate the cost-effectiveness of icosapenethyl compared with standard of care for high-risk patients with hypertriglyceridemia despite statin therapy. Within these types of cost-effective analyses, we need to have a firm understanding of what assumptions and estimates authors input into modeling in order to effectively critique its findings. First, the cost of icosapenethyl was estimated using two sources. The net cost sourced from SSR Health, which estimates the cost factoring in discounts and rebates, and landed about f- a little over $4 a day. And Redbook, which lists the wholesale acquisition cost, which estimates costs without discounts and rebates, which was reported to be just over $9 per day. Total cost estimates used in the model were calculated as the sum of the background healthcare costs, events, medications, and were inflated to the 2019 U.S. dollar. Patient events included non-fatal and fatal cardiovascular disease, including myocardial infarction, stroke, cardiac arrest, cardiac revascularization, hospitalization from heart failure, atrial fibrillation, ventricular tachycardia, peripheral artery disease requiring intervention, unstable angina, syncope, and major bleeding. Multiple events for patients were considered separate if they occurred more than three days apart from each other. The authors of this study performed two types of analyses, an in-trial analysis based on REDUCE-IT, as well as a lifetime analysis that carried forward and extrapolated the in-trial event rates and mortality in the intervention and control groups within the original REDUCE-IT trial. For the in-trial analysis, ethyl was considered highly cost-effective if the incremental cost-effectiveness ratio, known as the ICER, which outlines the cost per life year, or QALY, Q-A-L-Y, which is a quality-adjusted life year, gained is less than $50,000. For the lifetime analysis, the authors used simulation models to estimate the ICER over a lifetime horizon in 10,000 hypothetical patients, similar to those patients in the REDUCE trial. So moving into the results, for the in-trial analysis, the SSR cost of ethyl was an average of about $1,500 more than standard of care. And using the WAC modeling, the cost of ethyl was an average of about $7,200 more 
and standard of care. So when you adjust for utility, which as a reminder, utility is a measure of the value, the preference, or satisfaction associated with a certain state of health, patients who received icosapent ethyl in Reduce-It accrued an average of 0.07 qualities, more than patients who received standard of care. And that was with an incremental net cost of about $22,000 per quality gained using SSR cost. And reminder, this is considered highly cost-effective because that $22,000 per quality gained is under a $50,000 quality threshold, which is considered standard to be considered cost-effective. But if we go back to the WAC costs, the incremental net cost was about $107,000 per quality gained. So this was really only considered an intermediate cost-effectiveness level since it's between $50,000 to $150,000 per quality gained. So once again, factoring in utility, patients who were treated with icosapent ethyl accrued an average of 0.24 qualities more than patients who received standard care. And then in the lifetime projections, about 89% of the simulation models produced an ICER or an ICER of less than $50,000 per quality gained using SSR cost, but only 72.5% of models produced an ICER of less than $50,000 per quality using WAC costs. And so that was a lot of numbers and abbreviations, but basically to summarize, in trial, icosapent ethyl was considered cost-effective when it was priced at around $5.80 per day or less. And in the lifetime analysis, icosapent ethyl was cost-effective within the standard $50,000 willingness-to-pay threshold when it was priced at or below about $10 per day. So cost-effectiveness studies are subject to a fair bit of conjecture because the investigators must use estimates of cost and estimates of predicted future health usage. So that's why sensitivity analysis are so critical to these cost-effectiveness studies. So can you tell us a bit about the sensitivity analyses performed in this particular study and what variable would likely have the biggest impact on the cost-effectiveness of the cosepent ethyl. So the authors ran a sensitivity analysis to look at the change in different variables for the different willingness-to-pay thresholds, both in trial and in the lifetime projections. Some of these sensitivity analysis input ranges included the cost of icosapent ethyl, the cost of a major event or an adverse event, medication discontinuation rate, different discount rates, the probabilities of an adverse event or death from an adverse event or just a major event, and others. And so the authors then ran a lifetime probabilistic model about 5,000 times to assess the association with outcomes of simultaneous changes in all these variables. And based on these analyses, what we see is that the ICER was by far the most sensitive to the cost of icosapent ethyl, both in the in-trial and lifetime analyses. And all of this is reflective in figure four in the article with the tornado diagrams. For those unfamiliar with tornado diagrams, to put it very simply, the bigger the bar, the more important that variable is or the more sensitive the outcome is to that variable. And in all of the tornado diagrams, regardless if it was in trial or lifetime or using SSR cost or WAC cost, the daily cost of icosapent ethyl is at the top of each of the tornado diagrams with the longest bar, meaning that that cost was the factor that contributed the most to the model. Now let's chat about how some of these findings lead into the strengths and weaknesses of this analysis. In relation to other cost-effectiveness models, this study possessed many top-line strengths, such as the use of both the SSR and the wholesale acquisition pricing to estimate cost of the medication, 
in a robust simulation exercise with strong sensitivity analysis displaying the large effect of drug costs on the outcomes. Additionally, this is the first analysis of icosapenethyl that includes patient-level data. There have been some other studies that have modeled cost-effectiveness of icosapenethyl by utilizing population-level data. However, these models often lose a level of complexity of the individuals participating in the trials that serve as a basis for the model. Additionally, I think this study really did answer the question many of the clinicians and payers have wrestled with for some time now. Is the high cost worth it? However, just like with any study, this model is not without its limitations. And in this scenario, these limitations largely stem from the limitations of Reduce-It itself. Many of us have likely heard of the controversial use of mineral oil placebo in the Reduce-It trial. It's thought that the mineral oil placebo was not a true placebo and therefore caused a pro-inflammatory state, which could yield more events in the placebo arm, creating a larger effect difference between the intervention and the placebo which would cause an overestimation of the effect of the intervention with icosapenethyl. We've seen other studies, such as the STRENGTH study, that studied high-dose EPA and DHA versus a corn oil placebo and yielded no statistically significant differences in ASCVD risk reduction. Additional post-hoc analyses of these two studies found that a difference in lipid traits over time within the placebo arms of the two studies strengthens the hypothesis that reduce it overestimated ASCVD risk reduction. Another limitation is that we have to interpret lifetime projections cautiously because there are many assumptions that are factored into this analysis. For example, what is the real-world patient adherence to a quote-unquote lifetime medication? Even if the patients were to have 100% adherence to their medications, models such as this may lack the ability to incorporate changes in other aspects of the drug regimens that patients may have in their lifetime that could also affect their health outcomes. I found it curious that the cost of initial and follow-up office visits, eligibility screenings, and lipid panels were left out of the total cost estimates within this model. Additionally, drug costs can change over time, especially as medications shift from brand name only to generic. And as we mentioned, icosapenethyl actually became available as a generic in late 2020, though it's still relatively expensive. So the threshold for determining whether something is, quote, cost effective is often by gold standard set at $50,000 per quality adjusted life year. In other words, if a medication or intervention can lead to a significant improvement in someone's quality of life or extend someone's life, then it has a value and the willingness to pay threshold is set at $50,000 for that value. And anything that costs less than $50,000 is declared, quote, cost-effective. Of course, there's nothing magical about that threshold. It's just a commonly used benchmark. I think a real litmus test is whether patients and prescribers are enthusiastic about using the medication in practice. And so that's my question. Are you enthusiastic about using this drug in practice do you think it's currently underused or overused or perhaps even misused on the wrong populations? And does the results of this study impact your thinking in any way? Yeah, great question, Stuart. So I think this is the real question. As clinicians working to help manage chronic diseases, particularly in the cardiometabolic space, I think we can all agree that any medication that's demonstrated an ability to reduce the chance of cardiovascular events such as myocardial infarction, strokes, or death is a big plus. 
does the benefit of icosapenethyl outweigh the price? The jury's still out a bit based on the reduced results. It'll be interesting to see more data from larger population-level real-world data studies on the use of icosapenethyl as this medication is utilized more broadly in clinical practice and we can examine some of those outcomes. All in all, I haven't seen too much of an uptake of icosapenethyl. Uh, anecdotally, if I do see it used, it's usually started in cardiology setting and continued by primary care. But I do think as pharmacists, we should continue to analyze the data as it becomes available, make person-centered and data-informed recommendations for our patients, and look for opportunities where this medication may be able to be used and help reduce cardiovascular events in our patients. Yeah, I completely agree with Joe. While ethyl seems to be effective both from a cardiovascular risk reduction, triglyceride reduction, and potentially a cost-effectiveness perspective, we have to keep in mind that at the end of the day, this is all based on one study, the reduced study. And I do believe that this cost-effectiveness analysis was well done. But at the end of the day, I also don't feel like this has really pushed me to recommend using ethyl more To be honest, much of my focus in practice, which again is a residency clinic, is just increasing the residents' awareness, understanding, and implementation of the 2018 multi-society cholesterol guidelines and optimizing statin therapy first. As many of us know in primary care and ambulatory care, appropriate statin use and intensification for both primary and secondary prevention and in managing hypertriglyceridemia still is not quite where we want it to be. And so for now, I do plan on continuing to recommend ethyl for patients who meet the criteria of reduce it, but I'll also use that patient-centered perspective and keeping the patient's copay and pill burden in mind. Well, Vivian, Joe, again, many thanks for writing the commentary and being on the iFormerX podcast today. We don't often review pharmacoeconomic studies on iFormerX, but I, I think they provide us some important insights as to whether a treatment is, quote, worth it. Well, tell us what you think. Is a cosapent ethyl worth it? You can post a comment on the iFormerX website at iFormerX.org. Just be sure to log into our website every time you visit. And if you'd like to become a member of iFormerX, you, you can. It's easy enough to sign up, and it's free to health professionals. And if you're a board-certified ambulatory care pharmacist, you can earn recertification and continuing education credit for listening to this podcast and reading the written commentary. We've partnered with the American Pharmacists Association to produce the Evidence-Based Practice Literature Evaluation Series, and that program is available online, on demand, anytime, anywhere through APHA. If you want to learn more, just click on the link posted directly below the written commentary on our website. And lastly, a big shout out to John Murphy, who retired from the University of Arizona College of Pharmacy a couple of years ago and who recently received the Parker Medal from the American College of Clinical Pharmacy, which is the highest honor bestowed by ACCP and given to someone for their lifetime achievements. Dr. Murphy is an icon in clinical pharmacy, having served as both ACCP and ASHP president. And you may have used his textbook, Clinical Pharmacokinetics, to learn how to use patient-specific data to individualize the dosing of medications. I've known Dr. Murphy for many years, and he's a tall but humble guy who's dedicated his career to advancing clinical pharmacy in the United States and around the globe. So thank you, John, for your service and for paving the way for future pharmacists. Until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, Editor-in-Chief of iFormerX, 
signing off. 